Are you interested in city consciousness? What do you think about knowledge and knowledge creation? How can we move bad stuff to improve the good stuff? Stay tuned for answers from Ben Wash. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation that this is the right place? Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Ben Wash, Senior Research Engineer. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, space and time, threshold for bad experiences, opportunities in tools for improvements, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Ben Bosch is a senior research engineer, graph shaman, and data magician, and the kind of person who wants to build a Dyson swarm and explore the stars, while wants to understand how this consciousness thing works. He is always standing between two words and trying to connect them. Due to his strange brain, he sees everything as a network of networks and tries to find the next intellectual thrill. In the past, he had worked on swarm intelligence projects, spectrographs, fraud detection, and GNNs, just to name a few, and he contributes to open source whenever he can. Ben currently works on upgrading the world's financial infrastructure to make it more transparent and verifiable. Everything is a network, you just don't see it yet, according to him. Ben's voice can be familiar because he is the voice in the intro, and he is my partner in crime. And with that, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, and I highly appreciate your appearance on the podcast. Let's jump right in. What does the future of cities mean to you? I try to give a short answer to this one, because most of my knowledge had been gathered by osmosis. So the future of cities, to me, I think about this question, pictures came to mind around, or environment well, a bunch of people live. But then I start to think about it, okay, over time, yes, the first few pictures are, I'm like Dolly right now, the first few pictures are on Earth, but then, okay, what about outside Earth? What about as a spaceport, as a generational spaceship, and how big a city in the future could be, because listeners won't know I'm a big sci-fi fan and foundational series of possible. There were some cities which were encompassing a whole earth, every square inch or square centimeter in proper measurement forms was metal or concrete or some other material. That's what came to my mind. And then the question is, okay, but what about the details? So let's try to extrapolate the current technological progress, which in my view, will only just accelerate. I think cities in the future will get better and better, more easier to live and become more and more seamless. So the people living there could focus on what's important for them and not worry about the nitty-gritty details of living. Just a few examples. We talked about this offline, but autonomy is improving. Nowadays, there are some companies which can do photon impact camera control out from a neural network. Those types of technologies, as more and more companies, their data engine can became more prevalent and this will be for autonomous drones, which will be more performant. Ergo, cities in the near future will become more spread out because a lot of services became cheaper and with a much wider distribution. Many interesting threads and I would like to first understand to base this discussion. What does the city mean to you? It is such a sentimental question. So the city is like an environment where lots of people live or trying to live. But if I take a step back, it just, the city is hard to touch and grab, in my view, an emergent object based on the interactions, what the things living there are doing. 
And the reason being, you can cut a city in half and then you have two cities. If you cut it up enough, then you have lots of bridges. And then if you cut it up more without hurting anyone, of course, you just arrive to two people. So that's why I say the interactions with physical objects and with each other, those are the parts of the city. But it's not a first class entity, just an emergent object. I love that you highlighted that if we slice up the city half and half and we arrive to two people, then that is a city still for you. If we count their interaction together, their interaction with the environment. So in this case, I assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, your city understanding is not linked to size, population, location, and for example, an industry involved. It's more about the interaction between the elements, regardless of what those elements are and how many of those elements are there. Conscious agents interacting with each other and with atoms in a close proximity for an external period of time. If I want to be more precise with my wording. But again, this city concept only lives in people's heads and it's just approximation. And the other thing which I wanted to say is, okay, the city looks like this right now as of today, but the definition that I tried to walk around and describe is I think it would be for a little thing as well. And I think if I describe it this way, it made me realize that the quality of the city also could be measured by the quality and frequency. What was the other quality of the interactions you can have there and quality in the broader sense? Because some interactions have enjoyment quality, but some interactions have monetary value quality as well. And there are a few other ratios. I think you get my point, or you will ask more questions if you don't. We are. I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> Thank you very much for thinking through and giving us that. This is your understanding of the city, not just for today, but for far in the future. That's amazing. Does this mean that in expense, the Rossinante's company were a city for you? Those five people? So for context... The Expanse is a sci-fi series, which I highly recommend, set in the stage when humans are multiplanetary, but they cannot leave the solar system with high enough speed to go out and return from some other system. And that they, of course, discover a way to do that. And Rocinante is the spaceship. It's a salvaged, quote-unquote, not stolen Martian warship. And I would not consider it a city, like a nano-city. It was like a village. But yes, my definition would fit into that. And I'm totally fine with that because they are living there. They are interacting and not entities interacting other entities throughout the story. So yes, I would consider it a small, but still a city. In your understanding, does the city have a purpose? Can an emergent property have a purpose? Now we're going into a really deep philosophical stuff because I have a bet that this whole consciousness thing is just an emergent property of our neurons. And based on that line of argument, we could consider that with high enough interaction speeds and volumes, a city could become conscious, which is a bit wild. Maybe I'm missing there something. Or the other way of thinking about this is there are different complexity levels. There are different amount of emergence is possible. And if you turn that argument back to your question, I don't think a city in itself has like a purpose or maybe my English language is breaking down here, but I really like the end hill and analogy with people and city because does ants make an anthill? Does an anthill have a purpose? No, the ants living there have a purpose and humans living in a city have a purpose, have multiple purposes, plus always matching ones, which could be considered sad, but it's great because we are trying to explore what is the best to do. 
and we have a variety of bets to do. No, I don't think city as it is has purpose. The people living in the city have, or hopefully have a purpose and the purpose of the city or an imagined purpose of the city, I would consider that just emergenting from the people living there. So it comes from FDs inside and the context around the city to its history, location, etc. I would love to pull back a little bit with this consciousness thing. Let's fight. Yes. <laughs> that it's really interesting that you say that these emergent properties don't have consciousness. Because if you go to different cities, you experience different vibes, atmospheres. I'm just questioning whether that's consciousness of the city, whether that's something which comes from the emergent property, but you can't really put it onto one person or a group of people who just create that vibe or atmosphere. How the city is easy to maneuver, easy to go around with cars or with public transport or just walk around. You haven't said anything objectively measurable there. First of all, how a given person would feel about being and experiencing in the city and interacting with people. Yeah, but we can't measure consciousness yet. True. I don't see it as a contradiction. Okay. It just, as I said, it's, it is a theory and maybe I'm wrong. But the main point is we don't know yet. What we know around the city is there are a lot of interactions happening between people and between people and atoms, like building up a house, closing a door, eating an apple, etc. And the feel and the vibe of the city is the accumulation of those experiences and how those experiences, what kind of things, what kind of feelings induce those actions and incoming information inducing in you is highly dependent on you. I'm not saying there is no correlation, but that's a two-way street. I think we will get back to these philosophical depths, but let's leave it for a bit. And could you tell us how far in the future are you thinking when you are talking about space cities or space settlements, for example? Generally, when you talk about the future, how far are you thinking? It depends on the hour of day and my coffee day mostly. <laughs> In general, it varies for most of the time. Okay, what do I want to do next? Where do I want to go? What is the next big thing I want to reach? Seconds, hours, weeks, months, years. That's the usual stuff. Then regarding this question about the future and space, it is, it's really hard to extrapolate the exponential curve of technological progress. But I think we are like a hundred years away, proper space city means people and families living there. If I think about it, I would say a hundred years. And after that, if it became a spacefaring civilization, I could think of a few potential avenues. Yes, we are leaving the limits of the flesh and we are game like androids with replaceable parts. We don't have to worry about a lot of things or if it became uploaded. So I think these concepts of city, etc., regular events, like for next thousand years, latest, worst case, because we either perish, I get a low chance, punishment, low chance, or we get uploaded and change to like non-biological bodies or an atomic world. So to simulate more and more stuff. So I think in the far future, like a thousand years from now, we don't really have these concerns. The most of our concerns will be, I don't want to say elimination, but just designed out. And what are your three biggest concerns now regarding the future of cities? That's one of the easiest questions, which I would ask in this interview. Why are you not spoiling your point, Chase? What happened for <laughs> coffee? Yes, I do. So I'm working on the things I'm working on because there are a lot of technological advancements that are happening and those are great. And my 
theory is that when there is a greenfield thing, it's quite easy to innovate and make advancements in a certain area. That's the easy part. And there is no video, but I'm doing heavy quotes. It is not easy. And I have huge respect for anyone who is moving humanity forward. What I think is my biggest concern is around how do we collaborate with each other? How do we allocate and share resources? How do we make sure that we have mechanisms becoming a bit popperian right here? How do we have mechanisms to remove the bad stuff? Bad stuff, just basic trash or harm for materials or bad policies, bad leaders, bad companies, etc. Because if we have that thing, we have this mechanism which works, which can allow us as society remove the bad stuff, policies, substances, people, etc. Then we are on a good track. And that's why one of the biggest concerns of mine is how do we make the flow capital as transparent and as verifiable as possible. If we have that, then people can innovate and people can make bets and can try things out and also pull up productions for bad things and evil things. If somebody giving money to fun for things, lobbying for policies which are bad for society, other people which reduce the rate of progress to reduce our capability to solve problems and have a precise expert knowledge. That's why I'm working on what I'm working on. Protect this, include this. So that's concern number one. That's why I'm there. Secondly, which is related, is the notion of trying to protect people too much from experiences which are not that positive. Because as a kid, needs all a few times to learn how to, and then just don't worry about it. As we grew up, there are some events, there are some things which you may not like, but we should not just put everyone in a cocoon. I think that is the biggest existential risk I see. Not 1984. I feel a bit, but not that much that good. I am more fearful of that we became society which portrayed in the brave world. The three big concerns that I try to sign up is protect freedom, protect the aircraft mechanism, and the third would be accelerate knowledge creation. I think on knowledge creation front, we are wasting a lot of attention, energy, and time and money. And this is tied back to the previous two, of course, so they are course related. But how can we consider not just remove the policies, habits, things which are obviously hard, but how could we consider the things which slow down our learning rate? In spite of this being the easiest question, you give very deep answer. Could you please expand a bit more on this concern regarding accelerating knowledge creation? What do you mean by wasting attention, time and money? What do we waste on? And what are the harmful things which slow down our knowledge creation, in your opinion? For example, in my view, I haven't spent much or signed, say, any time in academia, but I don't like the incentive system considering academia. I don't like the arrogance, which I see in some, not all, but some places that academia is a source of knowledge, because as we see multiple times, knowledge creation happens also, and for the most part, on the field. And academia is a really good accumulator, summarizer of knowledge in my view. Let's not try to teach a bird how to fly. If you want to understand it more, read Nassim Nicholas Taleb's essay around. The wasting part is that all those smart people go to academia, which is their choice. I have poor choices. Let's go. But if we have all those smart people in one place, let's make sure they are advancing our knowledge cumulatively. But how this whole initiative system is set up that you get government grants for publishing papers and the more citations you have, because it's easy to measure, I understand that part, 
you get more money, more prestige, the vicious cycle. But papers doesn't equal advancement of knowledge. And also, I don't really see replication and confirmation around scientific theories and scientific results. There are differences in industry, of course, because said this three multiple times of flying, but in computer science, it's not perfect for sure. But even before publication, researchers, even academics just kicking around for fun. Hey, I made this new model. This is the cause. Guys, it has verification built in. Next week, it's implemented in some open source library. And two weeks after that, there's a new service which are using it. So we are talking about like new knowledge, new idea, application, in a matter of days, sometimes hours. But in other fields where the replication would be much more important, for example, psychology, social sciences, economics, replication is really vague or non-existent, or replication even discouraged, as it can be read down by a famous story from the book, Surely You Are Joking, Mr. Feynman. It's the stories of the life of Richard Feynman. And some psychology student reaches out to him 40 years ago, or even more. Hey, can you be an advisor for my research study? Yeah, sure. I'm not butchering the story. I tried to give out the gist. Feynman recommends the replication. Hey, there was some other study in psychology. Try to replicate it. A good start if you are getting the groups. And the student was really on the point, wanted to do it, but the project was discouraged by a student's supervisor from the psychology department because they are not doing replication, which is a symptom to a root cause of if you want to advance, we need as certain as possible stepping stones, but without replication, it's not possible. And if you are producing research, it's not replicable, just cited because it sounds plausible, then how you are getting and how you are using the grant money for, which is coming from taxpayers, etc. I don't like that. And I really like the experiments which is happening in the decentralized science space. There's also a company called Research Hub. They were attendees of the recent Network Seed conference. And basically they are using monetary incentives to incentivize the behavior which we think as of today is the best advanced knowledge creation. And also may give an option to people to live outside this government grant paper factory cycle. What is knowledge for you? Please, Bethel, don't hate me if I am butchering this. Recently, two, three months ago, I finally bit the bullet to listen to Brett Hall's podcast, which is a theory of knowledge podcast. It was recommended by Navar Ravikan, who is one of the world's best angel investor by a lot of measures. I was like, okay, I'm curious. Let's dive in. And not counting this podcast, of course, that was one of the best podcasts I found. And if I'm butchering my explanation about knowledge creation and knowledge, please listen to that podcast because Brett Hall does an excellent job of explaining what is knowledge, what is knowledge creation and I hope I'm quite certain that if you listen to it, you're going to feel like your mind is expanding. The feeling I have very frequently. But back to your question, what is knowledge? What is knowledge creation? Knowledge, in my current view, is having a really good, so I say, great explanation of why a certain thing is a way it is, which is really hard to bury. This idea comes from Karl Popper and then David Deutsch spoke the beginning of Infinity, which I just today ordered five DOA. And in that, David Deutsch gives the example of why there are seasons, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. In Europe, in Australia, as you learned, there are seven seasons in Victoria and three in Perth, but that's the whole other conversation. So let's go with European example. Four seasons. The ancient Greek explanation was that Demeter, who is the goddess of farming and plants, etc., has a daughter, Persephone. She 
fallen in love with uh, these and she's moving back and forth. And that's why it's getting colder and hotter. That's what colder the season. And this explanation really easy to vary because it could be why not a different goddess? Why not going up? Why not coming down? Why not have a different husband? A lot of variables here to vary. Compared to that, we have seasons because the Earth has an orbit around the Sun and as the incoming rays angle changes the distance from the Sun, that causes the seasons. I did not give a really precise explanation because I like the knowledge, but if you find it, it's really hard to vary because the Earth is a given orbit. The rays are coming in. So it basically goes back to physics, the explanation after a few indirections. The laws of physics are really hard to vary as we learned. Except that we are learning that maybe Einstein's relativity theory getting disproved. That's not the best word for it, because Newton's laws were disproven, but we are still using them. They are just not that accurate as Rocky learned in the Hillary project. Newton's laws are quite useful for like ballistics, etc. But if you go really long distances or you are approaching a measurable percentage of the speed of light, then Newton's laws become much less accurate than relativity coming from Einstein. And what Fanny is alluding to is there were some news that some researchers made an experiment and globe, which are this so hard, which would imply that gravity has some quantum effect. And if that's confirmed, that would mean that Einstein's theory and the equations coming from that need to be upgraded, expanded, revamped to include this special grace to have a much better, even harder to vary explanation of what's happening there. Knowledge is a good explanation of why a certain thing works or is as or it is. Happening. Yes. And it's really hard to vary, which is very important. I think there is a phrase which could be applicable here that perfection is achieved when there is nothing else to remove. And that saying could be used for, for a great explanation, which is hard to do because it's hard to weigh this all the It's really hard to remove stuff. Your other question was knowledge creation. There is an assumption in this, and I'm not gonna going through the whole argument chain because Bradford has 200 episodes of that. So I'm just gonna give you the gist in the interest of time that as knowledge creation is creating better and better explanations to understand, to explain what's happening and why is it happening. And it's not just in physics, but in everything. You can create knowledge about everything, but there is no perfect final knowledge. There is no end state. This is a never ending, beautiful pursuit of expanding or scope, breadth and depth. As Newton discovered his theory, it was really useful. We did a lot of stuff with it. And then it broken down in certain parts. Then we realized, oh, we can make this even better. And it's happened multiple times in history that, oh, we discovered everything. It's nothing, it's just maybe some parts, weird corner of physics or chemistry or biology departments will find something. But there is always more because there is no certainty. There is no absolute certainty in life. There is no final explanation. Just there is always a better one. And for the full argument chain, read books from David Deutsch, of infinity, or if you don't be global creator, then listen to talk as from Brett Hall. Knowledge creation is creating ever better, ever harder to vary explanations why the things are the way they are, or why that is the causal chain between things. Some people think that knowledge creation is all about testability, and it's part of it. It's a really important part of it because there are David Deutsch coined the term crucial test, which is I have two conflicting theories like Newton's Einstein's theory. I'm gonna do a test and let's see which one predicts the results better. And probably no, 
Einstein was not the money on this one. Tests and testing are to confirm theories and explanations. If we only go for testability, I'm going to say to you, hey, this grass, if you eat a kilogram of it, you cure your cold. And then you say, hey, I tried. Let's imagine you tried and it's not work. Then I can say, because you don't eat exactly one kilogram, but with PhD students or ex-PhDs, you need 1.1. So as you can see, I varied the explanation, but I haven't even given one how the grass would cure your cold. So that's why testing is not enough. And the whole cycle of knowledge creation is you conjecture a theory, a potential explanation. Hey, this is happening because this and that. And then you devise a test. And then based on the tests, you consider your life choices <laughs> or you create knowledge. Rings and repeat. So testing is a big part of it, but not the end all be all. That's what I want to add. That's a really important distinction and common misconception. If testing is very important, and this is knowledge creation, creating good explanations, ever improving explanations, what do you consider a science? Test or smallest? What do you consider a science and what is the difference between the biggest, the capitalist and uh, smallest science? Science with the smallest is just a fancier term for knowledge creation. And scientist is just a fancier term for a knowledge creator, but everybody can be and could be a knowledge creator. The big S parts science, I think that's a harmful thing for society because when the big science in the capital has evoked, it usually create authority, which could simplify the communication in some senses, but usually get overdone and becomes a sense of entitlement. This is what science says. I think if we consider each other for the most part, adults and hey, this is what's happening here. Here is my explanation that you can build rapport with your fellow people. And then, hey, I give you 10 good explanations. Probably you're trusting me. So yes, this is what I recommend. Explanations can be found there. So if you build a trust with your communication, then you could use that. But usually it gets overused and people are using it as authority. Yes, there are some technical problems with this to always ask for explanation because not every people have time to chase down, to go down a cushion every time someone claims something. But I think people need to be open to the possibility that everyone is fallible. This comes from this ever-greater explanation. There is always a greater explanation. No one is infallible. Not even scientists which are sitting in a silky chair, the ivory tower. So I think consider everyone is like reasonably competent with their mental capacity. And if I cannot explain a thing, then I just don't understand it now. By reading ontology of biology, he's a quite well-known guy in auto circles, but even he assumes that the person who is talking don't know anything about him which is a quite humbling experience for myself, but I understand the notion of, okay, let's go with explanations and let's try to avoid arguing from authority. Because if we think about history, no good thing had come from that. So we discussed your third fear in detail, this knowledge creation mm. and the limits and slowing down that. I would like to go back to the first one that we don't really remove bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because in our conversations, you also very commonly say that I or people or we shouldn't really concentrate on improving the bad things, but more concentrate on improving the good things because that's what we should focus on. For example, if we are talking about individuals, then focusing on their unique ability is much more useful than trying to improve their not that good of the skills. And I'm curious whether there is a discrepancy or how do you consolidate this? 
or have I misunderstood something? Those are two sides of the same coin. Okay, let's pump resources into the highest leverage stuff, the highest ROI. And if you remove some brakes, which slow you down or stopping you, your highest ROI stuff could become even higher ROI stuff. That's how I think about it. And it's not improving the brakes. It's okay figuring out which brakes to remove. Because I would argue some constraints are useful, but constraint design and incentive design is a really hard problem, mostly because of computational irreducibility. First of all, other rabbit hole. So the thing is that I don't see a connotation there that, okay, this is the highest leverage thing here. And okay, these are the brakes which are slowing us down most. For example, a previous guest made a really good point of, hey, why Australia has the most expensive building costs. It's a top most expensive to build here, but they don't have the highest quality. It is that value and he will be after this interview on the podcast. Spoilers. <laughs> so the thing is that why are we making this hard to work with atoms? I think Peter Thiel made this point with a controversial figure, but he's right about a lot of stuff that, hey, why are we making this hard to work with atoms to tinker around? I was on a space conference this week. And I obviously asked around the permitting process. Yes, let's make sure that necessary constraints that a crazy person could not get a rocket launch improved in a day. I understand that notion, but they said to me that, and I'm going from memory, it takes like four to eight months to get a satellite launch approved and three years to set up a launch pad, which, okay, it's like a metal frame and a hard concrete floor. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I know it's more complicated a bit, but I think things like that, also just getting a building permit. I'm not saying that let's go to anarchy because I don't think anarchy is a good way to go. Let's minimize the potential harm but not eliminate. Because as I mentioned previously, if a kid falls and scrapes his knee, he will learn from it, not die from it. And a lot of things can recover from negative impacts, thus made more resilient or sometimes anti-fragile due to the process. Which brings me to my other question I wanted to ask regarding the second seer saving people from specific experiences and making a cocoon around them, creating the brave new world. How would you establish the threshold? What should be prohibited and what should be permitted? I think that's a false notion to establish a threshold arbitrarily beforehand. I think that threshold should be not set by one benevolent God. I think the morality of society changes and improves over time. Like Earth had slaves a couple of years ago. Now we don't have good. Now we consider more and more living beings, even if we eat them because they are delicious. How can we reduce the suffering we are causing to them? That's a great initiative. So that's what I mean by society improving constantly morally. The other thing is which I still on the fence, but somewhat agree with Mr. Deutsch that every evil is only due lack of knowledge, which is a really interesting idea. And obviously when I hear some new things, I have a habit of, okay, how can I use a statement from a really smart person? And so far I failed on this one. Let's go with, okay, someone is robbing someone on the street, which is bad. Not cool. Not cool. Okay, why is that person robbing that other person? Because that person tried to eat or don't know any better to get some money or don't have the knowledge and skills to do something better. Yes, that's my only disagreement because maybe some people just plainly evil. But I think that percentage is 0.00001 or even less global population. So I would rephrase this as the vast majority of evil is due to a lack of knowledge. 
And that's how I've approached how can we improve the knowledge acquisition for people. And this will have effect on city as well, because probably I am more deep into some new technological advancements than who are not in the IT field, but there is coming gold from Khan Academy. Probably listeners heard about ChatGPT, if not, try it out. But Comingo is a combination of um, artificial intelligence, which can work on text quite well and answer questions, summarize it, even be a bit creative or imitate some styles. And they integrated it with Canada, which is a free site to go from kindergarten math, like one plus one equals two in most parts of the galaxy, to university math of circle integrals. And they have this pathway for chemistry, biology, physics, and a few other stuff. A lot of kids already have a tutor, which is infinitely patient, 24-7 available, and just going to improve more and more over time as they have more competition. Basically, the core cost of this is energy, which also will become cheaper and cheaper as we improve our solar panels, have more batteries, etc. Education is going to be more personalized and cheaper over time. And that will have an effect on the layout and the interactions happening in the city, which I think could be interesting to discuss more on this podcast. Okay, so we have this trend, which is, I would say, five or 10 years away when we arrive to the state that 90% of the world students are having a personalized AI assistant. And if you write that, how would a city look like? I don't think that schools will disappear, but the activity is happening in the school and the overarching, let's say, purpose of the school would change of, okay, you can learn these subjects and expand your knowledge here. What kind of things you got? Okay, social activities, sport activities, housing with each other. I think that will be much more play much more exploration. The reason why I think schools will stay there for a while because they still have the buildings. That will be like much more homeschooling. So parents will say that, hey, let's spend together in this suburb and then let our kids play together here. And that's slowly as the wheel of time turns around, changes the out of the city because, okay, you don't need to live that close to a school. So families move around, would try further from the city center because it's cheaper there, because everything else is available, etc. And the big thing, which I don't think many people are thinking about, is the virtual parts, because I'm not that old, consider myself quite young, and I'm quite into the IT world. But when I learned that there's a game called Roblox, which is 80% of developed countries' kids spend their majority of their time there and they are interacting there. And I haven't even heard about it before. And how many interactions are happening there? The people interacting there are also interacting in real life. And they are meeting up, they are making friends. I would consider that also part of the city. And that's a really untapped resource regarding like community engagement, or let's put our creativity together to create something or create a service there, or just provide the space to hang around, to organize. So these virtual environments are absolutely not considered in the current trends and strategies. And so clever or entrepreneurial people are tapping in and getting access to the younger generation. They are making games there and that will become easier and easier. Just last week, there came out a prompt, like a short description to short movie, which was like, not pixel quality, but if you squint a bit, you couldn't tell the difference. If you're a professional animator, all of that generative AI model. And the point is here that those habits, which we are also in the city, those interactions, those needful offices, the common patterns will change for the most part in the next 10 to 20 years. And I think city building, city planning professionals and people who are trying to make it in the real estate world need to consider these trends. 
or at least need to be aware of. I honestly forgot what was your question. I hope I answered this. You did. And then we shifted towards other parts, which is very good because you started to talk about, I think, the opportunities. What are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you? This is not investment advice. None of it is advice. This podcast is informational. I will arbitrarily okay. interpret this question the way I would like to answer it. Peter Thiel fashion. The biggest opportunity is regarding a future of cities, in my honest, humble opinion. Because I like to think about incentives, I think I would focus my answer around capital gain. Like, how do I think you can get the most benefit? What are the three biggest opportunities to get the most benefit, to get ahead, to make it? Number one is be aware of right slow. So the right slow is that it's coming from an airplane manufacturer person who's observed that at every cumulative doubling of production, the cost of the product decreases around 15%. Okay, bad. What do you mean by that? I'm going to say arbitrary number, so check your sources, because I don't know from the top of my head. Let's assume that we created globally one million square meter of solar panels. And the cost of that was per square meter 30 bucks. When we arrived at the point that we created two million, so we have one million, I'll get other million, cumulative doubling, then cost per square meter is decreased by 15%. There are a lot of things which we are increasing production of. Solar panels, batteries, drones, electric cars. Basically, a lot of things which are made of atoms, which are basically most things. The bigger the city, the more things made of atoms are made repeatedly. So you can assume that long term, in certain key areas, especially energy space, things are going to get cheaper. Energy is going to get cheaper. Solar panels are going to get cheaper. It's a quite surefire thing. There were like, some people like Tony Siba predicted with this rise law how cost of farmers would plummet. Everybody else thought that he's crazy and he still had the slides. As time progresses, he's getting more and more smug to present them <laughs> and show them that, hey, my prediction was right 15 years ago. And he predicted that the solar panels price would hit that low amount in one month and it hit a month previous than his prediction. So he's always saying that, yeah, I was very close, but even I undervalued, right? So he was pessimistic, basically. Yes, which is pretty funny. And because of that, travel and the cost of moving it around will also be cheaper which also will have an effect on how much money it costs to buy. Yeah, there are inflation, central economic things, but over time, I am quite certain about this. And because of this, you can imagine that the willingness from people to buy houses to live somewhere, because it's easier to move things around, will spread out. So you could make bets of, okay, the city becomes more spread out. In my opinion, not just things you become cheaper to move around, including people, but as drone deliveries ramp up, you can check out Zipline, you check out Scoopo Arrow, Mansion, Australia. They basically run on electricity, it's becoming cheaper, and batteries are improving. You can fly more things cheaply from A to B, and this will have a snowballing effect. So people can be further away from civilization. I still have most of the benefits. Ergo, those things will become cheap. You can ride this trend. You can examine, okay, either things are changing, other things will not change. People want to each other. People would want eat good food. People want to have best for their families. And you can use these trends. Over time, the house, which has a power generation and storage included, that will become a requirement as first Augusto become a requirement that actually the internet, this will be like, okay, I have a battery solar panel and this will have an effect on the grid as well. So the grid will become a lot more generator. And there are already tests in, I think, South Australia and other parts of the world 
I think in California as well, kind of virtual power plants, like every home has battery and solar panel. And if they opt in, they can balance out the grid. And I would consider those trends as well. It's quite a convoluted way, but I think this is like Boy 21. Oh, Boy 22 is, I can't believe I'm saying this, but artificial intelligence. I just had a conversation with a, a guy who invented some way of 3D printing. He was working with a uh, CAD software. CAD means computer aided design. In six months, the computer aided design went from zero generative AI capabilities that some of the software you can describe in plain English or even in other languages. What do you want? And you get there by 80% right now. And this was a few months of progress. So this will become better. More and more people will speed up manual, boring, repetitive, and dangerous tasks. And think about it, not like a replacement of you, but try to use it, try out the roles, try chat GPT. Think about the things you don't like to do. Okay, I hate doing this. Okay, can I automate it or ask your nurse friend, your friendly neighborhood, not Spider-Man, but nerds, give a beer or coffee, whatever. And like, hey, do you think I can automate this? I can design this out. Because as time progresses, the answer is doing more and more yes. And the people who stay in their jobs, the ones who could utilize these tools, expand their knowledge, stay on the learning path. Because 40, 50 years ago, you learned one trade and you work on one job and then you retire. This is not the case today. And increasingly, will not be the case in the future. Yes, if you are a certain Japanese sword maker, you're going to be rich regardless of economic circumstances. But not counting that corner case, especially if you are in the built environment or in general, rich worker, you can afford to use and learn these tools and look after them and try them out and try to include them into your workflow. Because if you don't try it, you're going to get replaced without competing by a person or company who does. So that's a quite big opportunity if you make an effort. And always be nice to these AI tools because then when they awake, they will remember you. That's how I justify my Hi, ChatGPT. Welcome to every conversation I have with it. I think the last thing is that which comes from this knowledge creation and ever greater explanations and there is no final knowledge that problems are suitable. Every problem can be solved, physics permitted, which means there are no unsolved problems, just unreasonable deadlines. What I have seen multiple times is the habit of, oh, government, please tell us how to innovate. If you are working in this industry and change the software in your head, oh, government, please tell me how to innovate. You change that to, hey, I think this could work. Nothing in the physical laws permitted then go for it and try to find a way to make it happen. And then it happens, then see the effects. The government can jump in and figure out how to regulate it after the knowledge creation, after the thing had been created, tried, etc. Because the government's only role, in my view, which not everybody would agree with, is to have more political violence, keep up the system, of error correction, because government is not about who should rule, but to have a system for error correction. Remove bad leaders, remove bad policies, remove bad people. I think this is the government's only job, and the government should not try to tell people how to innovate. Reason being, we don't have a theory for knowledge creation. We don't know yet what is the process of knowledge creation. We don't know in a way that we cannot write algorithm for it out of today. So if you don't know how to do it, how to set guidelines, recommendations for innovation, it is not possible. When you describe the second one, you started with, I can't believe I say this, but AI. Why did you start it like that? Because it's still in the fight. It's really useful, the generative AI stuff and artificial intelligence in general, but there is a lot of hype around it. And I was like, 
So mainstream. Exactly. So mainstream. But still, in my day job, I'm dual building to at least to artificial intelligence models to enhance myself, my output, my effectiveness, my learning rate. I'm using GPT-4 for learning to figuring out stuff. And I'm also using GitHub Copilot to code faster. Not sponsored, but I use and I see the value. Understand how much faster and better I am, how much better I became in solving unforeseen problems and learning to use effective way tools, which could have took me like weeks or years. It became hours, days or months, which is amazing. And I think any other knowledge worker could use this and not just knowledge workers, because I've seen a young mechanic wearing Oculus Quest headset. It's an AR headset. You can see through. 300 bucks or something. It's not that expensive, like 10 Starbucks coffees. Maybe a bit more, but you got the point. And the guy was fixing his car by wearing the ER headset, having the car in front of him, of course, like he's fixing it, and having three screens in ER fixed next to his car. In the middle, a YouTube video about the problem he's trying to fix. On the right, he was scrolling to some forum, which I assume some people discussing. And on the left, there was like, not ChatGPT, but some other AI model, which he was conversing, <laughs> which is, I'm ashamed to admit, but not that much through my mind. This is how AR and AI converging to help people, not just knowledge workers per se, but people who are in the trenches in some sense, doing the harder, physically, certainly harder, and sometimes mentally harder job to work with atoms, to fix a car, to build a bridge with an airplane. And I think this is staying a bit under the radar and spreading slow a bit. But I'm excited to see what kind of effect it will have in the near future. So imagine the faster learning rate who's on ER glasses and okay, this is how you fix stuff. You have highlights, alerts, guiding your hand, the AI model, having the context of your environment and the context of your previous knowledge to help you, to guide you, to improve you. So that's quite amazing. I'm really looking forward to it. Each generation becomes smarter than the previous one because we learn from the past. Hopefully. Hopefully. And... It will be amazing to see how much farther are our children from us than how far we are from our parents. Because of these tools who help them learn more, help them learn faster, help them learn different things in a much more effective way. I can't wait. What excites you besides the implications of rights law, not just the first, but the second and third order consequences? and the AI tools which help us develop faster. What else excites you? You probably know this, not only as you that I'm interested in recent developments, advancements in technology, in philosophy, epistemology, etc. Recently, like not counting AI stuff, I'm going to be cheating a bit. So I'm excited still about the advancements which we're going to make with artificial intelligence in a physical world, with atoms like material science and also in biology. One of my previous jobs was a data engineer for a firm which were handling DNA sequences. And recently, DeepMind created an artificial intelligence model with a graph neural network, let's not go there, to predict potential molecules and materials, which basically are a huge kick and boost to the material science space. And I cannot say what kind of advancements would come from that. The other thing which excites me is obviously the space industry. That's why I went to conference recently and a few months back, it was on to other one. Other than that is privacy preserving technologies and technologies which remove the trust assumptions needed to operate and collaborate. For example, we are shooting up more and more satellites, we are getting more and more data, 
on the space conference, I found of these two companies which are doing imaging. So like using satellites to take pictures of Earth and using image recognition, which has some AI right now, to gather data on how uh, certain fields are doing, how the city is doing, what are the wildfires, and more and more things go up and you have more data to make better decisions. Other thing, this podcast probably will get uploaded via a Starlink Starlink. Starlink is the biggest constellation which provides internet all around the world. You can buy a terminal, put so not thinking juice, but zappy juice aid, and then you have internet almost anywhere in the world, like anywhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And that's why more and more airplanes are getting Wi-Fi because they have a Starlink terminal installed. So telecommunication is improving. And I think it was Vodafone or Teleco, whichever, that there are no low orbit satellites. So you can go out to the wilds and have a call in the middle of nowhere. That's quite exciting that kids and people from Africa, India, South America, all the islands, a huge amount of people will get connected and get access to knowledge of how to make their lives. Well, that excites me. And I think my colleagues will cure me if I don't mention this one, but I mentioned like privacy preserving technologies and technologies which are removing just assumptions needed. I'm quite interested in what's new, what's possible, what's possible, which was not possible yesterday. So probably some of you have been a part of some data breach by some big name provider and they just doing nothing about it, but your credit card, bank account, home address, driver license, got leaked. But there are some technologies existing called zero-knowledge proofs, which their mathematical basis were established 15 years ago, that you can create a mathematical proof about the fact that you have a driving license without showing your driving license. And this is true with certain certain technologies. This is true for any digital data point. You can create mathematical proof and you can just give that proof and not the underlying data. So instead of uploading picture 21st century about your driving license, so a certain telecom provider, not Starlink, can read it into the wide twice, is of that a bad actor would only get a mathematical proof that you have a driving license. The honeypot effect of these companies would be greatly reduced. People's privacy would be much more preserved which also has auto-quality effects on society. Also, as these things become more and more programmable, the level of convenience, the speed of services could also be improved. Ergo, people have more time for stuff they would like to do. Because for us, or each group, bureaucracy is a bit inconvenient, a bit more damaged, but for a person with two kids, two jobs, etc., going into an office for the government or for some utility during workday is almost impossible. I'm excited that these technologies make it possible that we are getting more and more personalized services which are transparent and mathematically verifiable. Not just a paper promise, not just a contract, but a mathematical proof or really hard to modify code. So I'm quite excited about that. Thank you so much for sharing your excitements and enthusiasm. It's my pleasure. What is your role in establishing the future of cities? I don't know. Time will tell. But what I hope it will be, or what I'm going to make it be, or die trying, is to make the world more transparent and more verifiable. And verifiable in a sense of trustless verifiability. If you believe and accept physical laws and accept math is working, I know that's a big ask, then that's what was I'm talking about. Trustless verifiability for the most part for as much digital disease as possible. Because if we do that, then it's possible to create an incentive system which us forward. And also I believe that most people are good and well do good and transparency and trustless verification 
are helping that by working on those things. Again, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your role. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? It's quite a big responsibility. The audience is getting bigger by the day, so I try to be, I know it's surprising, I try to be responsible. Request to the audience is, and Glob Butcher is from Master Yoda, but do or do not, there is no try. What I want to highlight is much more things are possible than you would think, and much less things are essential to achieve things than you would think. And the only way of knowing is by doing it. Go after it. That's my request to the audience. Go after it. Accelerate. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. It was really interesting to hear Ben's approach to knowledge and knowledge creation as a never-ending journey to find ever-improving and less changeable explanations. Not to mention his excitement for technological disruptions and space enthusiasm based on sci-fis. Adam Doerr spent some time on these topics as well in episode 222. You can find out more about Ben online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Ben's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well. And thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?